Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Andres Gomez Emilson, and uh, Andres is doing a lot of interesting work at Stanford, looking into the mathematics behind pleasure and pain uh, with the Qualia Research Group. The, I love talking to iconoclasts within academia uh, because it essentially what academia seems to do is break down all societal conventions about what should be and tries to get to the truth. Of course, a lot of academia is wrapped up in um, non-truth and and uh, groupthink and a lot of other things. But what I love about this episode with Andres is that uh, all of the Puritan dogma about bliss uh, is questioned. And from that point of questioning, we can get to the truth. Because as, as long as we're questioning what everybody says is the right answer and actually back up and be like, well, what is the, what is the truth of this? What is the truth of bliss? Um, and there are a lot of people suffering. And, you know, my understanding of what Buddha said is that life is suffering and until you come to that realization that life is suffering, you will not get out of suffering. And, and Andres offers a lot of valuable wisdom on what is suffering and what the role of bliss is and all these different types of bliss, bliss uh, into how to end suffering. Um, as I learned in this episode, there are about 10% of the population that just don't have the capacity to feel good to feel well um, and why would it be a problem for that 10% in order to change their brain in order to feel good because honestly like if you're not feeling good you're probably not going to be able to per- participate in society to have a family to do all these things that might contribute to your short time here on earth being of benefit to yourself and those around you. And so it's a really interesting episode and I learned a lot and he's got a lot of science to back up what they're talking about. Um, also doing a lot of research onto the psychedelics and, and stuff like that. And from a, from a quantitative and qualitative understanding of what's actually going on. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. If you find it to be value, I'd highly appreciate it if you could find us on iTunes and go ahead and leave us a review or subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Um, and yeah, if you're on Twitter, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I'm at Stuart Alsop, III. Uh, please, my DMs are open. I respond regularly to people. Um, so yeah, let me know what you think and have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Andre, Andres uh, Gomez Emilson, and he is the Director of Research at Qualia Research Institute. Uh, he's investigating the mathematics behind pleasure and pain, and he was a co-founder of the Stanford Transhumanist Association. Uh, we are going to have an excellent talk. I'm really interested in this pleasure and pain. The mathematics behind pleasure and pain is super interesting to me. Uh, what got you into this? <laughs> Hi. Uh, what got me into this? Um, well, I think, I think uh, first of all, like an obsession with uh like philosophy uh that's probably the the defining characteristic of my my <laughs> lived experience um there's like very very intense um puzzlement about the nature of reality like why are we experiencing things and um ultimately kind of like a quest to figure out like what is that what actually matters um and uh i mean we, we can talk in more detail but like as a big picture i kind of realized that uh, there's this strong case you can make that what truly matters is basically the quality of your experience and specifically how good or bad it feels. And although a lot of people kind of like focus on external circumstances or, um, you know, like there's like things such as like the PERMA model dealing with like relationships and, you know, achievement and other properties like that, uh, all of that seemed to me kind of a, a bit of uh, deceptive uh, because ultimately you could also have people with you know, a manic episode that it doesn't really require any particular 
external circumstances to be in, in an extremely ecstatic state. And then the question became, what exactly does it mean to be on an ecstatic state? And can we formalize it? Can we find the, the science of it? Mm, very interesting. So I just, I just, uh, I just volunteered at Glide uh, SF Church, and that was really interesting. And so I, I was thinking on the way over here, because there's so much uh, essentially bullshit in, in, in our society and our particularly in San Francisco here there's so much kind of intellectualizing and just like and then I went there and it was like it was real it was like people were having real experiences there and like there was real trauma and real suffering but there was also a lot of smiles and a lot of ecstatic states I remember I talked to one woman who, who just was like lit up uh, in this just had a smile on her face the whole time and was just like it seemed like she was in an ecstatic state uh, but it, it was you know super interesting so and this brings to mind a lot of things. I've, have you looked at... Uncon so in a lot of yogic philosophy, they talk about conditioned joy and unconditioned joy. Mm -hmm. And conditioned joy being anything, like you said, extrinsic circumstances uh, uh, and unconditioned joy being a joy that arises with no conditions. And, and, and so that ecstatic state seems to be related to this unconditioned joy. And for me, that has been only i've learned it from a teacher christopher wallace that essentially uh unconditioned joy is the byproduct of a search for truth and mm. so the search for truth is the but as soon as the unconditioned joy becomes the goal it then fails to materialize and stuff like that based <laughs> on that what what do you think about that how do you how do you what is unconditioned? what do you think <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's a, it's very tricky. I can imagine in a subset of people, the pursuit of truth can definitely give rise to a, you know, certain like sustainable states of consciousness. Um, I should say right off the bat, I have a, <laughs> have a pretty dark view of reality. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, yeah, definitely a lot of meditation techniques and uh, for, for certain types of people kind of investigating consciousness can produce rapture and can be extremely blissful. Um, but I think that that does require particular kind of preconditions for, for their brain configuration mm -hmm. and, you know, their genetics. Um, there's a certain class of people, you could maybe say 10% of the population, that uh, meditation and any kind of like self-inquiry uh, tends to just make them feel worse mm -hmm. over time. Um, and in, in that sense, I would kind of like highlight the... The, the, the key feature that, you know, it, it really depends a lot on what is your hedonic baseline. And in a sense... Wait, can you uh, explain uh, yeah. hedonic baseline to people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically that's kind of like what is your... Uh, they also call it default hedonic set point. Basically, what is your average uh, amount of valence, how good or bad you feel. Um, and uh, research shows that that has a very heavy uh, genetic component. Uh, there's definitely ways in which you can make it worse over time with chronic stress and trauma and um, you know taking too much MDMA over many years like there's there's a lot of things you're gonna do to screw up your hedonic set point um, but uh, it's remarkably remarkably robust uh, it's like much more robust than people into intuitively think mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's kind of like if you ask me questions such as like, hey, would, would, you, would I rather have like, you know, a rich meditation field life or just be lucky to be in the top 10% of hedonic set point? I would say probably that one is more important. Mm -hmm. And in the con context of something like unconditioned joy, um, there is definitely something, and we can get into this, like how a meditation can carve your brain to produce more joyful states, which is definitely something real. Um, but a lot of it I do think is in a sense, um, these practices basically are telling your brain to, to not worry about the things that it usually worries about mm -hmm. and basically just rest on its default state. And if the default state is good, then yeah, that's going to feel like unconditioned joy. If your default state is pretty bad, that might feel unconditioned misery. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And how can you tell whether someone or yourself or, or anyone else for our listeners, how can you tell whether... Um, you have that default hedonic set point at a very high level or you have a lot of trauma. I'll give an example for, my, for myself. I think that I do have a, a hedonic set point that is high, so I think my normal state is really uh, happy, uh, but uh, I have had a lot of trauma in my life, which, which essentially has made that really, uh, that was not an experience I went into until I started doing some of this work and stuff like that, and now I feel like I'm reaching that hedonic set point again. 
how can you tell whether it's genetics or trauma or life experience or all these different things? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, one, one relatively simple way uh, is with this paradigm called experience sampling. Hmm. So basically you can, uh, over the course of, let's say, a week, um, you can uh, basically at random intervals in the moment, in, in, in the, during the day, basically say like, okay, from minus 10 to plus 10, mm. how good am I feeling? Mm. Where like minus 10 is the you know, ultimate misery, plus 10 is ultimate bliss, uh, and zero is kind of like a neutral state. Um, and alongside, you also write like why you think you feel that way. And uh, if you notice a pattern where like, hey, like the, the way in which you feel is, you know, highly tied to the circumstance, mm. then, that, then that's kind of like an indicator that like, hey, you, you, you actually do depend on this external circumstance. Maybe you're um, based, you have like a, a lot of trauma that you need to deal with. If on the other hand, you see there's like just no correlation. Um, and you're like always kind of like stuck in minus two. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, that's probably an indicator there's something uh, deeper going on. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you don't remember ever having actually felt good. There, there's a lot of people who say like, well, you know, my childhood was yeah. fantastic, but then I entered middle happened. school. Yeah, I got bullied or whatnot, and then everything went downhill. But if, if there's just no recollection of any moment in your past that you actually felt by default good, yeah, that might be is a hedonic set point issue. And what about food? Like, cause so I mean, uh, most Americans are on the standard American diet, so yeah. that they have this diet that they, that very few tests have been done with people. Well, now there are, uh, but you know, people off of the standard American diet. And what is the relationship to diet in this? Oh, it's I mean, very very large, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, in, if you ask, like you know, beyond genetics, what are like the the strongest predictors of hedonic tone? Um, it's going to be diet, exercise, sleep, um, air quality, and amount of trauma. Basically, yeah, those those uh, um, five things are kind of like really up, up there in the least. That's super, the air quality I've not heard of before. Actually, I might have heard like one sentence. I've seen um, Alex Chen talk about uh, <laughs> air quality, but now I'm putting it together that he probably found it from you. Uh, and then, uh, and so air quality, that's really interesting. And so is, it, is that something like air quality, if I move to Boulder, or the mountains or something like that, I'm going to have better air quality? Or is that a global thing now? Change Is the global air quality changing? No, it's going to be highly specific on the, on the region. Okay. Um, I mean, there's definitely like, you know, outliers if you're in Beijing, uh -huh. you know, that's really extreme. Um, but, but the effects both on health and mood seem to be based on a diminishing returns curve. So, you know, the difference between 100 PM 2.5 versus 120 is not very dramatic. Like that's going to be roughly the same. The difference between zero and twenty—that's like a completely different world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, one one thing you can definitely do is get a HEPA filter. And um, I've I've done tests with a PM two point five uh, measuring devices. And yeah, if you, if you if you live in a house that is like somewhat insulated, um, after you open the windows and you ventilate and then you close them, within a couple hours it, it really drops down to like pretty close to zero. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't really. I mean, in a place like San Francisco, I don't think. The, yeah, no. I mean, the, the PM two point five ranges between ten and thirty, and that's like pretty, pretty fine. Mm -hmm. So there's a few things I'm really interested in talking to you now. We've had a little. We've had five to ten minutes. So um, first is the uh, wireheading, uh, proper use of wireheading. Yeah, yeah. The right way. <laughs> uh, and then, and then the second is the research behind meditation, because it seems like you have, might have the most closest, uh, most access to the research behind meditation. And then the third one, which might be new to you, but it, I'd love it if it isn't, uh, is the research behind dance and ecstatic states, and the, the whether dance is a viable avenue to taking somebody's hedonic uh, valiance and increasing that. I don't, yeah, so whichever of those three you want to go down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I can, I can yeah, I can start with uh, like wireheading, that's right, a little yeah. bit. So, I mean, first of all, like wireheading, that's like um, some experiments that were done in, in the 50s and 60s, both in animals and in humans, about basically um, can you produce intense pleasure uh, by electric stimulation? So, uh, one thing they, they, they've done is like basically probe in different regions of the brain if you electrically stimulate it, what, what are like the behavioral effects and the subjective effects. And, you know, of course, if you stimulate the visual cortex, like that just creates visual hallucinations, but that doesn't impact your mood in, in particular. Interesting. Um, if you stimulate the amygdala, you basically feel rage. It's like very unpleasant. 
Um, but if you stimulate uh, the nucleus accumbens or the VTA, there's like these fairly central regions, um, you, you can feel intensely good, mm. uh, m- much better than like recreational drugs. Mm. Maybe not as good as uh, peak psychedelic states or peak meditation states, but really, really up there. Um, and it really depends on like the specific region you stimulate. You can stimulate like the areas that have more to do with uh, anticipatory pleasure, uh, desire, or consumat- consumatory pleasure, kind of like liking. Um, and definitely people report they prefer either either get stimulated in the liking mm-hmm. direction because if you just get stimulated in the desire aspect, you just become very compulsive, but there's not much of a payoff mm-hmm. of it. The best experiences is when you combine both <laughs> intense desire and intense consumatory pleasure. Interesting. Uh, kind of um, similar to combining uh, like an opioid with a stimulant, like people who speedball, so to speak. Uh, that's like intense uh, uh, liking and wanting at the same time. And that's kind of what recreational users describe as the best. But also you can do that with electric stimulation. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I do think like even just right now in cases of untractable depression um, or intractable chronic pain, it actually makes a lot of sense to, to do wireheading on, on people. Mm-hmm. And there, there's been some research on uh, its safety and if- efficacy on things like, for example, uh, Parkinson's disease. And it, it's, it's pretty good. Um, the, the thing is that it does have like some side effects. It's, it changes your personality to some extent. I mean, it's really a cost-benefit analysis. In, in healthy people, it's just not advised. Mm-hmm. But then something that we've done at Qualia Research, um, it's kind of like, hey, like rather than just dismiss the possibility of wireheading as this kind of reductio ad absurdum for, you know, hedonism is, <laughs> how can we pro- provide a solid case for how to do it properly? Mm. Like if the meaning of life is to, you know, feel happy and know the truth, um, you know, being in a, in a really good uh, state uh, kind of like helps you in both of those, those goals. Um, and uh, one proof of concept that we came up with is basically modifying the reward architecture of our brain mm. in such a way that uh, you cycle between different types of bliss. So, I mean, one of the key problems with wireheading typically is that you just get stuck in a very narrow kind of like reinforced set of behaviors. Mm. You can do it. You can see it in, for example, people who get stuck with like a gambling addiction or, or cocaine, like they end up just doing the same exact thing over and over, which is something we don't want. Um, And then one way you can avoid that is basically make it such that, yes, you will experience a lot of anticipatory pleasure. But as you do that, that makes it easier to experience uh, consummatory pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it makes it harder to experience anticipatory. Mm -hmm. And then the more you experience the liking, um, the more it puts you in a psychedelic state. And then the, the more you're in a psychedelic state, the more it makes you uh, desire. So basically, the idea is to cycle through different kinds of bliss mm-hmm. so that you're, in a sense, like being able to uh, be very active and motivated and then also very relaxed to be able to rest and then very creative so that you basically get out of it, uh, knocks you out of any attractor mm-hmm. that you're in. Knocks you out of any attractor. What is attractor? An attractor is basically... Um, uh, a, a small set of states that you tend to converge on. Mm. Um, and if you just have a desire and that's like your main kind of pleasure, mm. you will probably end up doing it basically the same thing over and over. Mm, because you've attached a kind of condition to that desire, which you, you then seek that same desire over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what you mean by attractor, that, that <clears throat> object or thing that has traditionally uh, gotten your desire and the one you tend to go for when you... That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating reading trip reports of people who take like methamphetamine, for example. It's uh, like they say like things that sound completely insane, right? They say like, oh, you know, on, on the day I'm like, uh, you know, like, a, like uh, I, I work in finance or, you know, like something that, hey, like it requires like a lot of rationality. Mm. But then like as soon as I take, take you know, a stimulant, I end up, uh, you know, playing chess for like 15 hours straight mm. without like going to the bathroom or drinking water or like these weird things or like, hey, you're just like utterly stuck in these like small region of states. Mm. And that's, you know, that's something that we really want to avoid if we do wire hitting. Mm. Interesting. So 
the accumbens. You talked about the accumbens, and, and for my listeners who don't know, that's where dopamine is essentially, uh, oh no, it's from the ventral teg- tegmentum to the accumbens, correct? Yeah, uh-huh. the VTA, yeah, ventral tegmental area uh, has, uh, uh, sends uh, stimulation to the nucleus accumbens. And then the nucleus accumbens shoots do- dopamine to every, all, all the other regions of the brain, yes. the main regions. Uh, dopamine and opioids. Like and opioids, okay. yes. uh, endogenous opioids. Right? Endogenous yeah. opioids, yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and there's, yeah, I mean, uh, just to throw in a little bit more information there, like it's um, basically kind of the outer shell of it. Mm-hmm. Is, of the accumbens. Of the accumbens. Okay. Is uh, where it, uh, if you stimulate it, it feels like liking, like it's an, an enjoyable thing. Whereas like the more central part is more uh, desire. Interesting. And that's really interesting. So there's another uh, that seems similar to the fact of the amygdala. The amygdala, the central amygdala, ha- is the s- store of the um, ingrained uh, fear. And then the se- the basolateral amygdala, the amygdala outside, is where you learn fear and you mm. dis- unlearn fear and stuff like that. So it's really interesting that in two parts of the brain, there's that central outside kind of thing. Yeah. Which is super interesting. So there's so much, so much we could talk about it. Uh, yeah. Um, How do you stimulate that accumbens? Like, would you stick? A, do you actually go? Like, where does the wire go? Do you have to do brain surgery? In order yeah, to yeah, yeah. Okay. Classically, mm-hmm. you do brain surgery, and mm-hmm. but there's other ways of doing that. I mean, like, you can also do it with uh, uh, ultrasound mm-hmm. stimulation. Interesting. Um, I know somebody who, who's done it. Uh, I mean, in a clinical setting, um, he mentions it's like very similar to cocaine. Interesting. Um, and and you can also uh, I mean, it's very hard to do it with, for example. Uh, direct current stimulation uh, but you can definitely do it with ultrasound mm. um, I'm not sure if you can do it with uh, TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation but ultrasound is like a non-invasive way of doing it mm. and then um, what are te- are there any technologies being developed are there any medications that are being developed so you just take a pill and maybe like nanorobots go into the brain <laughs> and stimulate it is there anything like that going on uh, not to my knowledge I mean like the most technologically advanced uh, technology that it's out there for these sort of thing would be optogenetics. Okay, optogenetics, and what is that? Yeah, so basically that is injecting <laughs> viruses into <laughs> nearby uh, neurons, modified viruses, that basically what they do is they um, implant a particular gene that makes your neurons um, build these photoreceptors. Uh, oh. It's called like uh, rhodopsin, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, it's the same molecule that basically your eyes use to be sensitive to light but now it's going to be inside your brain, which is like, you know, obviously there's no light inside your brain uh, for the most part. <laughs> but then what you can do is like a much less invasive surgery, just like a tiny hole in your cranium um, and put an LED in there. And the brain with inside the brain is fairly transparent. So actually you can like heat uh, with like, you know, green light or, or, or red light. Something is not going to damage your brain. It can still illuminate that region and then like that, region becomes activated and the really cool thing about that is that you can basically target very specific neuron types so it's actually less about like the specific uh geometric region in the brain and more about like hey like the functional region like what type of neuron are you targeting and Mm. that makes it like in a sense like able to speak the language of the brain much more directly that is really interesting what are the most interesting types of neurons in the brain? Uh, <laughs> you got the central nervous system, you got the brain. What uh, what neurons have you recently found out about or have known about for a long time that are really interesting <laughs> and that you want people to understand? <laughs> oh my gosh, I think I think that that's definitely edging into territory where I'm not a okay. not an expert. <laughs> yeah. I, um, um, I can give you one of mine. Yeah, yeah, go uh, ahead. Okay, go so ahead. Uh, there's a von Ekman. Von, it's a spindle neuron. Okay. Uh, and I don't, and I'm forgetting what it does. Uh, it's really interesting. But if any of my listeners are interested in it, look up a spindle neuron, and it's like von Ekman neuron. Uh, and I'm now forgetting what it does. But it, that that one was the most recent one. And once <laughs> I, I, I do spaced repetition software, so I get like I have I have uh, these things come back to me, and once I come back to it, I'm gonna. I'll reach out to you and I'll reach out to my listeners to, to explain <laughs> it more. But uh, that's super interesting. So back to the wireheading, or let's go into meditation. What, um, mm-hmm. what um, this fact about 10% of people have this really low baseline, that seems like an interesting fact that I hadn't heard about. How, what came, how'd you come across that information? 
what is the significance of that information? Yeah, the significance is quite profound. Uh, I came across it by, I mean, start, it's kind of like a rabbit hole, but like starting out with like research on like the effects of meditation. And like there is, you know, for 60% of people, it's just like pretty much just positive. Mm. Then there's like a subset of people who is kind of like have like mixed responses. And, there's, and then there's some people who just get worse. And um, no, like immediately once you start medit- they, medit- they start meditating, they start getting worse. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so and another kind of like key thing is uh, uh, there's a lot of variability in what's called the uh, valence arousal profile. So emotion, you can decompose it into uh, there's many ways of classifying emotion, but a very simple one that is accounts for a lot of the variance is like how, how much energy, how activated you are, and then how good you feel. That defines kind of like four quadrants. It's a uh, high arousal, high valence is kind of feeling excited, you know low arousal high valence is like relaxation peacefulness and then you have like depression which is like low arousal low valence and then anxiety or fear high high arousal low valence um and in in a sense like for uh, about like 40 percent of the population those two axes are uncorrelated so like you're, you're kind of like all over the place but then there's like two classes of people uh about like 30 percent of the uh, population each for whom the correlation is either positive or negative. So for a minority of people, whenever they feel really good is usually a high energy state. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite uh, for the other 30%. And my understanding is that people who respond very poorly to meditation, I mean, part of it has to do that if they lower their energy, they feel bad. So basically they are kind of um, people who uh, you might classify as kind of like melancholic depression, depressive, depressives, as opposed to like anxious depressives. Mm. And a melancholic depressive, really what they need is like constantly taking like caffeine and exercising and like doing stimulating things. Mm. And if you make them relax, they're, they're just going to feel pretty, pretty bad. Mm. Interesting. So I'm so interested because you, you not only said that for this 10% meditation, you also said uh, inquiry and uh, self-inquiry. So I've, I've now given up my formal meditation practice where I don't, I don't sit you know, for 20, 30 minutes in the day. I don't, I, it, that doesn't um, help me anymore. I've, I've done a lot of that. Uh, and, and so now it comes down to more inquiry, which is which you said, which is like inquiring into my state, inquiring into my reality as I see it. And kind of and then also the most helpful thing for me recently has been to any any phenomena that I'm experiencing, particularly the difficult ones. If I go back a step and look at who is witnessing the, that 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 experience, um, then it allows me to get some some space from it and I don't feel it in the same way or it doesn't it doesn't take over in the same way that it used to take over um, is that what you mean by inquiry or is it, is it only the specifically meditation or is there this other thing that is not bound to sitting like 20 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that that mm. also gets into that and this would be seems like it would be very hard to quantify too I don't know if uh, I'd love to hear anything any response you have to that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably divide inquiry into two components. I mean, you, you do have kind of the introspective inquiry, which is what you're referring to. Yeah. Then there's like cognitive inquiry, which is like mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's actually happening in the world, mm-hmm. like the nature of reality. Um, introspective inquiry, I think like, yeah, generally is pretty good. And, and, and as you say, like it allows you to basically de- disidentify with the negative experiences. Um, that will work for a good percentage of people, again, if you're above a certain threshold of suffering, that's not going to really be helpful. Uh, or at least I'm, I'm very skeptical. Like if you're like, you know, five out of 10 or higher mm-hmm. in the pain scale, mm-hmm. uh, really, that's that's not a particularly useful thing. Because you're 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 uh, you're bringing focus to that pain, which might heighten it or make it more more intense. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do know Shenzhen Young claims that if you uh, stop resisting pain, uh, basically, it, everything is better. Yeah. Um, I'm skeptical that that works for extreme pain. I, th- I think that's probably re- a really good advice for mild uh, pain and discomfort. That like uh, you resisting it is a very big component of the suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's kind of uh, uncompassionate <laughs> to go out and say somebody who has exp- like, you know, chronic pain in seven out of 10 every day that like, hey, you just should stop resisting it. It's like, mm-hmm. no, what they need is painkillers. Mm-hmm. Yep. And th- so for this 10%, what are the things that do work? Is there anything that works? Opioids. Opioids, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, every neurotransmitter system in the body is 
capable of being dysfunctional, right? For some people, it's going to be the serotonin system. For mm-hmm. some people, something more obscure, like your, you know, sigma or, or you uh, know, endogenous ca- or endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, some people who may feel kind of uh, like high nature naturally may have like very you know high density of cannabinoid receptors and and so on um but for people who have like low hedonic set point um it is often the case that um it's going to be that their endogenous opiates are messed up mm-hmm. uh that their the gene expression of uh opioid receptors is dysfunctional uh there's a particular gene called the scn9a gene uh, that is like super relevant here, basically encodes the shape uh, and the quantity of opioid receptors. Wow. And um, there's like some mutations of it that basically modify the pain threshold. And for a subset of people, their pain threshold is way lower than everybody else. Mm. Uh, so you can do a genetic analysis to, to see that. Mm. And for people like that, they will say like, oh yeah, my, like naturally I just feel like painful, um, psychologically, emotionally. Uh, physically and uh, you can give them a, a, a maintenance dose of a long-acting opioid and their life just becomes dramatically better and yep. there's kind of a, a, purine, a puritan aesthetic that would say like hey like that's that's horrible like give them opiates. you yeah, can't yeah. give them opiates yeah, yeah, what are you yeah, talking yeah. about like just you know meditate or the natural yeah. way like no you, you need to understand the biology here that like and, and you gave a great point which is dose as well most people are very ignorant on dose uh, because the like the the dosage on things is just so key for me uh when i was taking cannabis for pain it was it was uh i was taking high doses of thc no no cbd uh, and it was causing delusion. It was causing like, like you know, and I used to used to I used to recreate that way. That was then. So that was the only way that I knew about cannabis was recreation. Yeah. And then I started to get in pain. So I was like, okay, I used to smoke cannabis like this. I'm gonna do that again. And we do it every day uh, for the pain. And it was just, it was not working out until I until I until I found the CBD. Started overloading with CBD taking small doses of THC and finding that kind of like set point that allowed me to function totally fine, sometimes better. Uh, and, uh, and then that, and now, and now I'm not even on THC or CBD. Um, and I go off and on because if I have a pain crisis, then, then I'll, mm-hmm. then I'll, then I'll start it again. But, uh, and that dosage, dosage being really, really mindful of dosage was really important. Can you, can you give some, our listeners important things if they don't understand dosage? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, uh, I mean, obviously with opioids, a huge problem is tolerance um i mean one of the things that is um emerging in here and it's i mean it's not what quality research institute like focuses on but it's something that we are very passionate about because it 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 may actually help a lot of people in misery there's basically two two aspects here like number one is um the activity of the molecule on the opioid receptor there's two really a number of things uh in there a very key one is like whether it's a full agonist or a partial agonist. Mm. So, you know, morphine is a full agonist. Um, and the problem with that is that it can kill you, right? Basically, if you take too much, it's just going to do, uh, it's going to suppress your respiratory system. It's just going to uh, put you in a coma and then you're going to die. Um, but then there's also like partial opioid agonists. I mean, a lesser known one is uh, called tianeptine, but there, there's a number of ones and definitely there's a lot of uh, research chemicals that are like partial opioid agonists. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about them is that, I mean, they have kind of like this inbuilt safe switch that like no matter how much you take, mm-hmm. it's just not going to produce respiratory depression. I mean, maybe maybe you take like a thousand times, you know, the, mm-hmm. the active dose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing is like it's they're way more forgiving when it comes to tolerance. Mm. Um, the, what are what are a few of these? What are those called? Uh, partial. Uh, or I'm sorry. What uh, what are some examples of a partial uh, opioid agonist? Uh, Tianeptine is one. Uh, I believe like amineptin uh, as well. And there's like a uh, yeah. I I don't remember off the top of my head like they have like weird names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And then the other um, super promising avenue. That honestly, it's crazy that it hasn't been researched further, but it seems like really promising is this whole concept of like an anti-tolerance uh, agent. Mm. Oh, interesting. Like, I mean, yeah. most doctors, more scientists just assume like, you know, tolerance is an in- fixed. It's yeah. just like a fa- fact of life. Yeah. Uh-huh. But then there's like these things like, I mean, uh, probably the best known example is Ibogaine. They're like people who are like, hey, they've been taking heroin for 10 years. Um, 
and then like they take uh, ibogaine and then all of a sudden they don't have like craving or or, mm-hmm. or dependence on the opioid mm-hmm. now unfortunately ibogaine has been kind of hijacked by <laughs> um kind of like the more spiritual side of psychedelic uh research and a lot of it the people will say like oh you need to have a high dose you need to go through this intense therapeutic experience and figure out why you you, sh- you should give up on this and why you've been mm-hmm. bad and whatnot but uh ibogaine in microdoses seems to also reverse opioid tolerance so like i think like a much more humane method is rather than taking a large dose and suffering through this intense negative uh bad trip for most people um you can take like a 20th of it basically 50 milligrams um, every day or every other day and over the course of a month it's also just going to reverse almost entirely whatever tolerance you have and people who've gone through that they report basically um, and, I, and I say this especially for people with chronic pain mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. you don't actually expect them to ever stop taking opioids because that's just mm-hmm. not going to happen mm-hmm. it's much better if they uh, what, what people report is they, they can basically lower their dose of a like, say, like morphine um uh, 90%. Like they were taking like 30 milligrams and now they can take three and, and it ju- just works the same and they don't need to increase the dose because every couple of days they may take a tiny amount of ibogaine and that resets it. Wow. Um, I mean, if you ask me like, okay, like what's, what is going to be in 10, 20 years, the, the cutting edge of pain relief, I think is going to be that like partial agonist plus an anti-tolerance drug. Mm. And it seems like another component would be exercise because that's also that's also a huge thing, right? Yeah, 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 uh, uh, yeah definitely. Cut, you, you mean yeah. cutting edge in terms of uh, uh, not pharmaceutical, but uh, cutting edge in medicine that you can take essentially to yes. counteract the pain. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting that you bring up ibogaine because I've, I've I'm thinking about taking it iboga uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and. Really, because and also I came to a similar conclusion that my, my the coach that I said that suggested I said suggested take a full dose uh, for that exactly mm. that reason for, uh, <laughs> for you gotta go you gotta go through this stuff uh, and then I was like no no no, no I'm, I'm gonna do a microdose like that oh, okay. sounds, it yeah. sounds it sounds like that, a nightmare like, that is the, my my advice yeah. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like uh, Stockholm syndrome and mm. like. Uh, uh, I mean, like I guess, like shamanism, and uh, in in the in the sense of like you you really have to suffer to get the benefits, and I think I think all of that is bull. I don't I don't actually think that's <laughs> necessary. And that gets into a bigger debate. I want to first mention James Kent because uh, have you heard of James Kent or uh, psychedelic information theory? Psychedelic yes. information theory. That he's he's the main one, the only one I've heard of. Uh, well, except for you now, who who are kind of combating this like like this. Uh, this uh, shamanism, spiritual Puritan kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I really, really love his. his <laughs> it's a spiritual materialism, yeah, like John Petrupa would say. And that's what I wanted to get into this this nature of suffering, because because uh, so many people think that it's necessary to suffer in order to find um, peace. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that's. It kind of you it, that only works if you believe that so if you work on the belief of whether you like su- suffering is not necessary if you don't believe it's necessary there are easy ways to go there's an easy method basically and like <laughs> why like you can if you want that drama if you want to like yes i want to suffer to understand that you know like the the meaning of life and everything like that you can do that like there's no problem it's drama but, yeah but like don't force it on other people <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, when when from an evolutionary biology point of view, so evolutionary psychology, I mean, there's an aspect where if you feel like you're in thin ice in your community, and I mean, nowadays there's like we don't really have like many ways of reassuring ourselves that we are like actually in a good place in whatever status hierarchy we live in. If you feel that you're in thin ice, uh, like a lot of these kind of uh, submissive and um, like delta. Kind of um, strategies become very accessible uh, in one's mind and that includes things such as like offering yourself uh, as a sacrifice for like things that the tribe really needs to kind of like show your commitment mm-hmm. that like hey i really really do care about you guys mm-hmm. like like even though you may not like me like I, like you know and uh, i think a lot of kind of the psychedelic 
masochism comes from that is the sense of like oh i'm just on thin ice people don't love me like i just I just need to really suffer to show them that i, I really do care wow. but but i think there's a kind of like a tyranny of our programming and what you're offering what so and, uh, with quality research is that your kind of thesis of that that this is a tyranny and that we don't need to go down that way that that is a yeah that's a part of it interesting our philosophy is that whatever interventions we develop they should by default feel good all throughout and there's a lot of this reasoning that i mean in fact the more you stay in a i mean disregarding tolerance and there's like a, a big component but even on psychedelics the psychedelics don't produce long-term tolerance um the more you are in a particular state space and headset mm -hmm. a headset the more uh, that becomes ingrained in you. Mm -hmm. So like if you take ayahuasca and you have these like intense ritualistic, almost kind of uh, self-sacrificial experiences, mm -hmm. that's going to stay with you for a long time. And I don't think we really want that. Mm -hmm. It's better if you have like a, you know, very pleasant 2CB experience where you love everything and everybody and that sticks with you mm -hmm. instead. It's super interesting. That goes into this kind of like uh, the the seems to be a principle of uh human life that the more more we have of something the more we get of it mm -hmm. basically and uh, and and so um if you have money more you, you have more money coming to you because of interest if you have more love you have more love coming to you and all of that stuff it's really interesting more hatred you have more hatred coming to you um do you think that's right do you think that's correct broadly speaking yes yeah. i mean you you carve those states mm. um i mean there's is there biology behind that too yeah yeah i mean you um, can uh i mean the the, the most straightforward example here is like heavy learning. These what things, heavy learning. Hebbian. It's Hebbian a neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> Interesting. Which is like a mechanism that is happening, like in addition to tolerance. Where like I mean, tolerance is happens at the chemical level. The more you stimulate in a certain way, the more the less responsive you are to that. But like patterns, neurological patterns, when they do occur frequently, basically you're carving out those paths. Um, and I guess in like, the neurons, in it, the way that the neurons wire together, you're carving out that that particular arrangement. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Do you know anything about astrocytes, glia? Because 10% of the brain is made up of neurons, but we've got about 90% that are um, essentially non uh, non neuronal uh, uh, kind of stuff. And in a sim it seems like there's an analogy here between the body itself, because we had muscle, which the, 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 the researchers were focusing on the muscle, the doctors were focusing on the muscle, and then they kind of uh, forgot about the fascia and connective tissue. And, mm. and it's a similar type of ratio in the brain. It's later realization they have, you know, neurons. You, what was the, what was the, Cajal, who who is the first Ramon uh, Cajal. yeah Ramon Cajal. he he's like neurons it's all neurons but then ninety percent of the brain is this other stuff it's glia and connective connective <laughs> tissue of the brain anything interesting going on there anything you've been discovering uh, no not particularly okay. I mean I, I do find it fascinating and I I do suspect glia play an important role in consciousness mm. um, do you know but, anybody uh, I could interview in the further do you have any names who are people who are interesting researchers we could talk about it after too. Uh, yeah we can talk about it okay, after cool, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so we got astrocytes glia and then um, qualia what does qualia mean yeah so qualia is the raw way in which experience presents itself very classical examples is like the redness of red or like the how tart uh, feels like when you try a lemon or like a particular scent. Um, but qualia actually extends way beyond our common conceptions. And that's like really obvious if you take a psychedelic or you meditate a lot. And it's like, wow, like I'm experiencing this weird mm -hmm. thing that is as different uh, from everything I've experienced as like sound is different from touch, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, touch and sound are completely different worlds. They're both part of consciousness, but it's like they're almost unintelligible. It's like if you've never experienced touch, you can't really make analogies with sound that actually evoke what a touch feels like. Um, and I think like qualia as well, like outside of the range of uh, humanly accessible experiences in sober states, um, they're just like a vast, vast, vast ocean of unexplored, completely new qualia that I mean, we, we don't experience it not because it's useless, but it's just wasn't adaptive in the ancestral environment. 
Are you saying that we have access to this qualia, or we will have access once once you guys have done your technology and stuff? Like uh, you can think of it as kind of like concentric circles of like there's like the the qualia you only have access uh, in sober states. Then there's like meditation. In super states. Sorry, sober. Sober, sober states. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Then you know, like a uh, a little bit more would be you know even like alcohol produces new qualia, but it's like very subtly different. It's not dramatically different. You know, meditation is like even weirder. Psychedelics is like way bigger state space. But then there's like things that we, no matter what technique we have, uh, we can't access. There's definitely, I suspect there's a huge amount that nobody has ever experienced. Um, another component is also like what animals, non-human animals can experience. Like probably bats, when it comes to the, how they echolocate, they probably have a completely specific quilia for that. Mm-hmm. It is just like very well suited for that type of information processing. And uh, we, yeah, I mean, Presumably, the way to find out is going to involve things such as mind melding with a bat <laughs> or also uh, doing gene analysis of the gene expression of the neurons of, of, the, of the bat's auditory cortex and then express them in human brains. And then we it, would that happen in a similar way that we do the photoreceptor gene stuff? Yeah, along those lines, yes. Okay. Uh, what, what David Pierce and a few other philosophers believe is that. I mean, there's one way in which is like how the quilia are connected and that may have a lot to do with basically how the neurons are, are wired together. But then what the quilia are, such as like, hey, the fact that you can experience red, that may have quite a bit to do with the proteins inside the neurons and the gene expression inside the neurons. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the right gene expression, you may not have that. I mean, there's people who don't experience color, not because they don't have the photoreceptors or or not because the wiring is incorrect, but it's because they don't have the genes for it. Like the, the genes are just not being expressed. Whoa. And likewise, I suspect it's probably the case that the, the furnishing of your reality is like subtly different from the furnishing of other people, simply because gene expression in the brain is so diverse. This is the crazy thing that I learned in Behave by Robert Sapolsky is that the uh, w- within humans, like our variability between us two is larger than the variability between humans and chimpanzees. Mm, okay. Yeah, inter-individual variability. That's what he said, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, that, do, 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 I, did, I didn't know that, okay, that yeah. fact, but... Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah it makes, makes sense, and it's like, the, the, that's it's what we've been talking about this whole time, why somebody can try meditation and then have a horrible experience, yeah. <laughs> and then somebody else can have an enlightening experience the first time they try it. So it's super interesting. I want to make sure we're good on time. Uh, do you have to leave it exactly? No, no, okay. no, no, no. Um, So uh, the, the most important, the most interesting thing I would love to talk to you about is do you really think, is there any uh, benefit to those large dose uh, psychedelic trips or large oh, dose? Oh, yeah. sure. Do you like, because as we were talking about, there's this kind of puritism says that you have to do it, but getting out of the have to or anything like that, is there any benefit to one of those experiences? Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say not for ibogaine, probably. I mean, maybe 1% of people respond really well, but not in the general case. Plus, it's like cardiotoxic and like you just, it's like you, you can die on a high-dose ibogaine. Um, I don't know, high-dose psilocybin, LSD, 2CB, DMT. I think, I think like if you have the right brain, they can be prof- like really good. I mean, like uh, one of the things I've done is kind of uh, investigate the scale of pleasure and pain basically how intense mm. pleasure and pain can be and uh that seems to be a um intuitively people think that it's a linear scale but uh what my research indicates is that it's a, a really a logarithmic scale mm. so like the difference between six out of ten versus ten out of ten is not just four is like really like a difference of like uh, you know 50 yeah. or something like that uh-huh. uh in like multiplicative factor um and as well, like high dose psychedelics, like the difference between 100 micrograms of LSD versus 200 versus 300 is a profound difference. And if you have a high hedonic set point and you want to cram more bliss into your life, <laughs> one of the most efficient ways to do that is just ramp up your consciousness as a high dose psychedelic would do. And but if you if you're the opposite of that, then like the high dose is not a way to go because that'll send you to hell, basically. Yes, I strongly mm-hmm. advise against somebody who's heavily depressed or in heroin withdrawal or something mm-hmm. like that or in chronic pain to take mm-hmm. a high dose LSD is most likely not going to be good. 
So it sounds like you know a lot about chronic pain, and I imagine it's because you've been researching into the depression, and depression and chronic pain are highly correlated causal. Yeah. Uh, most people have the impression, I, I used to have the impression, and a lot of people that I help with, like yoga and movement, also have the impression that chronic pain is a direct signal that something is wrong with the body, or that something is, but it's not, it's, 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 it's something different. Can you talk about, like, because it's not necessarily something about the embodiment, what is chronic pain pointing to in an individual's life? I mean, I guess that's a very, very variable question. But. Right. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, I would say it's uh, uh, opioid dysfunction. I mean, like, mm. there, there is this, um, there's basically the stimulatory and the inhibitory part of pain, and they're like different networks, and the inhibitory one can fail over time. Mm. And basically, you can kill off those neurons if you experience too much pain. So basically, the bo- the body's ability to inhibit the pain uh, can diminish over time. Mm. So that's one of the things that chronic pain sometimes doesn't even stay steady, but it gets worse over time. Uh, and there's also like a causal factor that it makes you stressed. And then like being stressed also uh, prevents the inhibitory system from working well. Interesting. Um, and what about mm-hmm. the connection with emotions and stuff like that? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I would say so. I do think like I, I do agree that in in, in general, negative emotions uh, can be as bad as physical pain. Mm. Not when it comes to extreme pain. I think like when you talk about like extreme suffering, it's mostly gonna be like super intense pain. But um, like for example, I in in a study I conducted recently where I basically asked people what are your top three most pleasant and unpleasant experiences a significant proportion of people said like the worst experience in their life was the death of their parents mm-hmm. like either mother or father or death of a sibling and like that's basically very intense emotional pain now it's also important to note that emotional pain itself is something that um is related to the opioid system um mm-hmm. so i don't i think of them as different qualia but fundamentally i think it's the same phenomena and uh, I mean, that, that kind of like ties in with what we believe the math, the mathematics of pleasure and pain uh, actually rely on, which is um, we strongly suspect and, um, and, and we're currently d- devising experiments to actually test this. But we, we strongly suspect that uh, pleasure uh, is intimately related with this concept of neuronal harmony mm. and suffering, including both physical and emotional is intimately related with this concept of uh, neuronal dissonance. Um, and I mean, you a very simple example is just like, look at the heart rate, uh, the breathing patterns, and um, the uh, conductance of the skin of people, either when they are like in a, uh, uh, let, let's just compare, for example, when you feel like excited versus when you feel anxious. Mm. And you will see that when you feel excited, sure, like everything is pumped up, you know, higher, heart rate higher breathing rate but the patterns are like fairly regular like there's going to be some heart rate variability but it's not it's not going to be crazy um if you're in a highly anxious state all of those patterns are irregular uh basically you have kind of these like oh jagged like in between just doesn't click properly and you don't get these nice repeating patterns i would describe that as like neuronal dissonance and if you introspect and when you when you feel either physical pain or when you feel, feel emotional pain and you notice how your attention cycles over time, you will see it has like kind of like these sharp edges and it's not at regular intervals. Mm. As if you're in a meditation bliss or mm. MDMA or some heavy positive valence, you will feel this very nice, smooth, buzzing sensation. Mm. And we think like that's, that there's like a, actually an objective mathematical property there. Mm is kind of how symmetrical the state is will correspond to how good it feels. Super interesting. It reminds me of Nada Yoga, the yoga of sound, uh, but uh, yoga of sound, which is not necessarily sound like the sound we hear, but it's actually the inner sound, which you hear in deep states of meditation. That's this uh, tinnitus like buzzing, mm. but it's also a, so, and it's a pleasurable, intensely yes. pleasurable uh, thing that also um, uh, has that steady ring to it steady tone it's really interesting because now I'm, I'm remembering this kind of uh, meditation experience that i had where it was intensely pleasurable it got to that state of like and i actually got scared of it because it had been so it had been so long since i had experienced that since i was a child and uh and, and for some reason i associated that with 
pain or that there must be pain in yeah. order to in order to experience that or something it got really wrapped up and it's super interesting because that moment has defined my last seven years of my life and I ended up making a really poor decision about uh, about what to do with my health based on on being that being scared of that so it's super interesting I, I think that's really important this mm. type of steady state mm-hmm. also goes back to the microdosing and essentially like not going too far out of it so that you can kind of maintain that 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 steady state yeah I mean the it's very, very, I mean, both in our theory and also how, how it shows up in people's reports. Uh, basically, very, very pleasant states are, in a sense, like nearby pretty unpleasant states. Hmm. And so there's kind of like a simple way of describing these, which is, well, first of all, the observation that, for example, psychedelics, um, MDMA is a different category in this context, let's say like LSD. It increases the range of valence for most people. It's not only making you feel wonderful, it basically can make you intensify as both unpleasant and pleasant states. And uh, if you think of it as like LSD is adding this uh, reverb property to your experience, like you move your hands and you see these tracers, even in audio, you see kind of, you hear kind of like these echoes afterwards, everything kind of like lasts longer. It's also connected to the Tetris effect, you know, you play a lot of Tetris and you see when you go to sleep, you see Tetris in your in your visual field. Whoa, yeah, uh-huh. um, LSD is kind of like applying the Tetris effect to everything in your life at once. Uh, so you're in a room and then you get out of the room and you still feel your part of you is kind of in that room. Mm-hmm. Basically, the decay of experience becomes much longer. Mm-hmm. And that, um, if you're in the right set and setting, can basically lead into these very harmonic states, extremely smooth, extremely repeating and pleasant. But also, it can lead to superimposing two incompatible mm. consonant states that are mutually dissonant. Mm. And in a sense, that way can also produce extremely unpleasant states when those things are not in, in, in a oh, coherent right. state. So that, Yeah, that's why it's so important for somebody to sit with somebody so that they can break them out of the loop, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and choice of music and mm. choice of like stimulation in general mm. and, and also what, how to prepare for it to... To make sure you're, yeah, you don't enter into these, these unpleasant, dissonant states. I mean, uh, uh, the the same with, for example, like, um, uh, I mean, I, I would put it akin to like taking pretty much any sound and apply reverb to it. You, most people describe it as like it becomes more emotional, mm. but also it becomes more smooth. Mm. So like if you take a horrible sound like um, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've done, I've written software to analyze the dissonance of sounds and that's that, the worst. <laughs> it, it, it's saving grace is, is like a narrow frequency range, but within it, it's almost maximizing the dissonance metric. <laughs> but if, if you take that and you apply a reverb filter, um, it doesn't sound that bad. Mm. It actually sounds pretty smooth. Mm. Um, and you can think of that as is like basically uh, removing the roughness of it, the regularity, and it's just making it into this like kind of constant stream. Mm. Um, and likewise, like if you if you take for example like a a piano, right? Like each note in a sense contains a pretty heavy emotion on its own, and some combinations of notes feel really good as well. But if you play two notes that are like one semitone apart, it feels very dissonant. So whenever you make it easy to produce a lot of pleasure. Frequently, you're also making it easy to produce a lot of displeasure because you can put pleasures that are incompatible and that produces dissonance. Uh, interesting. Which is uh, why in kind of the extreme opposite, you take an SSRI and what people describe it as like it blunts everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It will cut off both the negatives and the positives. And uh, that's why people say like, you know, you take an SSRI, orgasm doesn't feel any good mm-hmm. anymore because you're adding all of this noise. And it's kind of like trying to listen to a concert with a white noise machine right next to you. Mm. It's like, sure, if you're in pain, a white noise machine is going to feel good. It's going to soothe you. But if you're trying to uh, experience something nice, the white noise is just going to degrade the experience. That's so interesting. And so talking about pleasure earlier, um, is there a type of pleasure that is ungrounded and almost unpleasurable um, in its extremity or its uncontrollableness? I guess this is an individual question or a subjective question because I'll, I'll give an example. I, I uh, was on a meditation retreat and I 
uh, was practicing this 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 technique where you curl the tongue back towards the the back of your mouth, uh, uh, and the mythology of it behind it says that uh, this will lead you to uh, have uh, get access to amrita, which is this uh, nectar, a nectar of bliss. Uh, hmm. And at first you'll you'll have a metallic taste, uh, and then you'll have <laughs> this pleasurable sweet taste, and you'll won't need to eat anymore, and you can, you can essentially just like be blitzed out all the time. Uh, I was also, I was also, this is a, okay. So I was also had a, um, a medical device that was uh, hurting me. So I was in a small amount of pain the entire time. Uh, and so, uh, so there was this unpleasurable thing as well. So, uh, and I got really extremely pleasure, but in a, in a way that did not feel grounded or did not feel like, like right almost uh so it's really interesting i don't know if you've had have you done any research into that nuance before of like pleasurable states like man i guess manic would be the closest yeah. thing yeah i mean i think that that sounds like you have some other uh systems that are kind of like kicking in at that point mm. and then making it unpleasant because it's recognizing it. whatever state you're doing um it's not reinforcing what it agrees with your values mm. But uh, if you could shut down that system, <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to the Puritan man- mindset. I mean, like that. Yeah. The Puritan mindset might be like a negative thing, yeah. but no. I mean, like also in wire heading done right, you don't want to reinforce something that gets you stuck, and like it's it's good to have those safety guards. So essentially, the goal is plasticity or, or maintaining uh, maintaining variability or and not getting stuck in a rut, whether it is pleasurable or painful. All right. So yeah. That that is the. Uh, uh, same way of doing wireheading. Yes. The, yeah, the, the goal. Or, yes, know, exactly. Wireheading done right. Wireheading done right. That's it. Okay. Yeah. This is super interesting. And last, mm-hmm. uh, do you know of anything, studies on dance and dance and pleasure oh, and stuff right. like that? Um, I mean, I would, I would put dance in the same category as um, thing. So basically, and actually the, this is probably a way of explaining also the science of meditation that um, we, I mentioned. So, uh, the following five things, similar category. So meditation, psychedelics, dance, art, and philosophy. Mm, you know, they seem completely different in a sense, but all of them lead to heightened states of consciousness. I'd never heard of philosophy doing that, but it makes sense now. Yeah. So basically, in order to achieve heightened states of consciousness, um, you need to do... There's like two components to this. One is increasing the energy parameter of your experience. And then the other thing is taking advantage of that heightened energy in order to reach a more harmonious state. So, and the way in which you can increase the energy parameter is you have really two options. You have, you can either uh, deal, uh, reduce what's called energy sinks, or you can increase energy sources. And in a sense, like how energetic your state of consciousness is, is a homeostatic level between energy sinks and sources. So through each of these examples, real quick. So uh, philosophy really attacks energy sinks. So basically they, uh, if, you, if they basically say like, hey, like that conception of reality that you were attached to, that you were relying on, assume that's just like false and like assume like you, you need to completely revise everything. Like that massive amount of energy that was being like basically sunk into that model of reality, all of a sudden your your mindset is not allowing you to do that. So that energy is floating around and needs to basically find some other way of reconceptualizing everything so you can actually find a sink. Uh, and energy sinks, I mean, obviously time itself just uh, lets energy dissipate. But then also the fact of recognizing something. Whenever you recognize something that could be like a, a habit or it could be a, an attitude or it could be even just an object that lowers the energy uh, so that you crystallize around it. Mm. Uh, if you're looking at a, mm. a, at, a, at a shape and you don't know what it is, that basically functions as an energy source, mm. uh, this inability to recognize something. And as soon as you recognize it, your energy uh, gets lower and that crystallizes on the shape that you recognize. Uh, now, psychedelics they basically attack the time component Mm -hmm. as i was mentioning like tracers right tracers and these echo experiences basically on a psychedelic everything takes longer to decay so that allows more energy to accumulate um and there's like some thresholds where like there's just so much energy that basically you can't even recognize everyday life 
and you end up in these like high energy attractor states. Um, dance, it's a, in, a, in a sense, it's like a profound energy source. I mean, you're like constantly stimulating your, your body. You're overwhelming your ability to dissipate that energy. Mm. And that can put you in this heightened uh, trance state as well. Um, and I mentioned like art as well. Um, art because there's kind of this balance between how new the shapes and information and sounds have to be. Mm so that your brain tries to recognize them and then fails at it. <laughs> mm. Which is like why sometimes art can like legitimately fail. I mean, like there can be bad art because it doesn't have enough novelty. Like kitsch art is like, oh, like you look at this and it's like, okay, yeah, it, has, it tries to have a twist, but it's just not, not enough to kickstart this high energy state. It just doesn't get you excited. Mm. <laughs> Unexciting art. <laughs> Interesting. And meditation, just to wrap, wrap up this line, is um, uh, it has a lot to do with hacking energy sinks. So in meditation, they say like um, Vipassana, for example, like inside meditation. It's like, oh, if you look at your hand, don't, look, don't see a hand. Mm. See the colors, see the shape, the position, the time, the emotion. Don't, look, don't see a hand. Mm. It doesn't allow you, like the state mm. is the instruction to not allow the energy to get sucked into this semantic To this sinks. label of hand, basically. Exactly. Mm. And if you apply that over and over to every aspect of your experience, uh, all of a sudden it's kind of you, you're kind of like coding every energy sink with kind of like a layer that doesn't allow it to work. And then you're like in this kind of like uh, echo chamber. Uh, doesn't allow the energy to dissipate and it heightens up the energy dramatically. Interesting. That's so interesting. But then you also need to cool down slowly, basically. Um, you're like in this heightened state, you need to also let it cool slowly so that the patterns that get reinforced are actually harmonic and pleasant. Mm. And the analogy here is with uh, metallurgy, like uh, annealing when you're uh, heating up a metal and you let it cool in the right schedule. Mm it will rearrange the molecules so that it actually creates a lattice as opposed to, you know, a lot of like imperfections. And, and that can like basically make the, the metal much more ductile, much more uh, flexible, more resistant. Mm. The same we believe uh, with brains. If you do repeated uh, heating up and cooling down into right mm. schedule as you made a meditation retreat, you're going to end up in this much more robust and, and flexible uh, end state, as opposed to our typical neurotic, cold worked uh, state of consciousness. Very interesting. Oh my god, this has been really cool. So, <laughs> uh, and to and to wrap up, how can people find more about what you're doing at Quality Research? Or yeah, uh, I mean, I would definitely recommend uh, watching this video called in Intro to uh, Qualia Research Institute. You can find it on YouTube, but also you can just um, look up like qualiaresearchinstitute.org. Um, I blog at qualiacomputing.com and uh, probably another very big source is um, uh, the, the website of my, one of my two co-founders uh, called Mike Johnson. His website is called opentheory.net and uh, that's where you can find the, the neuroscience of meditation. Very cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is really cool. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah it's been really fun. <laughs>